This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com Okay, good morning everyone. Shalom Aleichem. First we want to welcome our esteemed guide, Diogo, okay, who's an expert on all Portuguese history. Thank you for joining us. So, so far we've been in Spain and Amsterdam. And a lot of Portuguese Jews was slightly better than of its counterpart in Spain. The position of Jews were, was favorable practically until the bitter end. So for example, in 1391, when there were forcible uh, baptism, forcible conversions in Spain, and 200,000 Jews were forcibly baptized, in Portugal, the kings protected the Jews, so that they were not subject to forcible uh, baptizing. Now, there is a prestigious family called the Yahya family, and in succession, they serve the king one after another, generation after generation. The Abarbanel's family was uh, protected here in Portugal, and even though there was mounting feelings of anti-Semitism, in general, the kings of Portugal protected their Jewish uh, constituents. So, at first, Alfonso V, he brings in uh, the Abarbanel as the finance minister. After Alfonso, he's, he's succeeded by João, João, João II, or uh, João II, or in English, John. And John continues to uh, use the Abarbanel as his finance minister. However, in 1483, the Abarbanel was accused of conspiracy against João. And uh, Abarbanel gets the message that the king wants to have a private word with him. Now, the Abarbanel had heard that the king had just assassinated all of his father's advisors. And that when the king was asking the Abarbanel for a private meeting, it was to be able to put the Abarbanel in something called relaxation. Relaxation means he was going to kill him. So the Abarbanel flees Portugal and just makes it into Spain just as his pursuers were about to catch him. By the way, the Abarbanel writes that when he came to Spain, he was unknown. Nobody even knew who he was. He had more time to study. He had more time to learn. Actually, the Abarbanel wrote his commentary to the Tanakh while he was in Portugal. So, uh, now after John's death, the throne is ascended by Manuel. Now Manuel uh, was uh, offered the following shidduch. You know, a shidduch is the following um, match. He wanted to marry Isabella, the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella. However, the, the Mechutanim, Fernand and Isabella said that if Manuel is going to marry our daughter, it's on condition that Manuel brings the Inquisition and the expulsion to Portugal. So against Manuel's, uh, he had no choice, so he brought the uh, expulsion into Portugal. He was a little bit more kind than Fernand and Isabella, so he gave the Jewish people a 10-month grace period. However, he did not make good on his word. So, in April 1497, Manuel made a rule, made a law, that every single Jewish child below the age of 14 would be forcibly kidnapped and baptized. 
So, if you were a child in Portugal, a Jew child uh, below the age of 14, you no longer were a Jew. You were taken away from your parents. The parents never saw, saw you again. Actually, Rabbi Avram Saba, anybody know which safer Rabbi Avram Saba wrote? Very good, Mr. Rabbi Rothman, nailed it on the head. Give him, give the man a cigar. The Tzor Hamar had his two children forcibly kidnapped and baptized. He never saw them again. Many of the children were taken off to uh, islands off Portugal, to St. Thomas, off the west coast of Africa. So this was a, a very, this was actually a more cool aspect of the Portuguese expulsion than the Spanish expulsion. Now, on the first day of Pesach, without any warning, all of a sudden, Emmanuel comes in with an entire army, he rounds up all the children and they're baptized. What was the reaction of the Jewish people in Portugal? Different than in Spain. Many Jewish people killed themselves. That was the reaction in Portugal. In Spain, they allowed conversion. In Portugal, they committed suicide. They killed themselves, they killed their wives, they killed their children. And we're going to speak about the, the letter of Rabbi, Avra, of Rabbi Avram Zakuto. Rabbi Avram Zakuto is the inventor of the Astrolab. He was King Zhuao's personal astronomer. And my father relayed a very important story that's actually recorded in the introduction of Rabbi Avram Zakuto's Sefer Hayotzen. Now, when Christopher Columbus came to the New World, he was captured by cannibal Indians. And they put him in a pot. By the way, it's always best to avoid being caught by cannibal Indians. Because let's say you won't be joining us for the next stop. Right, so we're going now, what's our first stop? Tuman. Tuman. And then we're going to Porto. So if you're captured by cannibal Indians, You'll be with us for Tuman, you will not be with us for a Porto because you will be someone's dinner. And the Indians caught Christopher Columbus and uh, his end was coming near and he had on him the astronomical tables of Christopher Columbus that predicted a lunar eclipse. Oh, I'm sorry, from Zakuto. And uh, that predicted a lunar eclipse. So Christopher Columbus says, if you don't release me, I'm going to pray to my God and blot out the light of the moon. And a short while later, all of a sudden, it became dark and the light of the moon was blotted out. And they deemed Christopher Columbus a god and they heaped on him great praise. And actually, you could go to the museum in Lisbon today where you will see the astronomical tables of Rabbi Avram Zakuto with the Haggais with the footnotes of Christopher Columbus. In any event, Rabbi Avram Zakuto was the personal astronomer of King Wao. And in the Sefer Hayuchsen, he discusses the halachic issue. Is a Jew allowed to kill himself to avoid torture or conversion? We know that according to Jewish law, the worst sin is taking one's own life. We believe that if somebody takes their own life, they lose their share in the afterlife. The most valuable commodity that we have is our life. We are not the owners of our life. We are not even the owners of our body. You know, you, you walk around a lot of the European countries 
and uh, people are covered from head to toe in tattoos. According to Jewish law, our bodies do not belong to us. It's a gift from heaven. They're sacred. Our lives are sacred. So the question is, is it permitted to take one's life to avoid torture or being baptized? And Rabbi Avram Zakuto cites the Gemara Masech the that you just had in the Dafayomi, where the Gemara says that a uh, ship was taking uh, boys and girls to Rome and they were going to be violated in Rome for indecent behavior. And uh, the girls asked if they jump overboard and they kill themselves, will they have a share in the world to come? Will they have resurrection of the dead? And it was expounded, the Pasuk, Amar Hashem mi bashan ashiv, ashiv mi that I will even rescue you from the depths of the sea. You see, another thing you should avoid doing is taking a submarine with parts that were purchased in Walmart down to the bottom of the sea. That's also these are two important pieces of information. Number one, avoid being captured by cannibal Indians. And number two, avoid taking submarines down to shipwrecks. You learn very important things on this trip. And you see, these the people who went down to the bottom of the sea to rescue to, to see the Titanic, they will not have resurrection of the dead. Maybe the Marines will find molecules, but those molecules are never coming back. But if a Jew... (laughs) Thank you, I like that. If a Jew takes their life to avoid conversion, even if they go to the bottom of the sea and their molecules decompose, HaKadosh Baruch Hu will reconstitute their molecules in the resurrection of the dead. So says Rabbi Avram Zakuto, from here we see one is allowed to take their life to avoid even indecent behavior, certainly conversion. Furthermore, Rabbi Avram Zakuto cites the Gemara in Ksubais. The Gemara in the end of Ksubais says that anyone who attended the funeral of Rebbe, Rebbe was the redactor of the Mishnah, Mizuman Lechayel Mava will automatically go to the world to come. So there was a man who missed the funeral. He said, I can't believe I missed the funeral. How did I miss such a momentous occasion? He jumped off the roof and he killed himself. And the heavenly voice said, he'll also go to the world to come. And then the launderer said, I also missed the funeral. So the kaiveis, the launderer, jumped off the roof and the heavenly voice said, she'll also have a share in the world to come. So we see that if uh, in great religious agony, one is permitted to take their life. And therefore, says Rabbi Ram Zakuto, there were many righteous Jews who took their life to avoid torture and conversion. For example, in 1391, the grandson of the Rush killed himself, Al-Kiddush Hashem. Not only he, his mother-in-law, the wife of the Tor, killed herself. The Tor's wife, the Torah's wife killed herself. Al-Kiddush Hashem. So from here we see that for the sake of saving oneself from conversion, one is allowed to take their life. Now, the uh, Inquisition was preserved and upheld with great cruelty in Portugal. 
sometimes even worse than in Spain. So tens of thousands despaired, converted, became Portuguese conversos. But once you become a converso, your problems just begin because they, there was Inquisition. In 1504, there were pogroms. In 1506, there were pogroms. The situation in Lisbon became so unstable that there was a rebellion against King Manuel. So King Manuel allowed the, Jews to, the Jewish conversos to leave. And when they left, thousands of conversos returned openly to Jewish practice. By the way, in Portugal, the Inquisition continued until 1821. In Spain, until 1834. So this is some of the history of uh, the country we're going to. We're going to speak about a number of the G'daylem, uh, most notably Rabbi Avram Saba, who lived a very tragic personal life because of the forcible conversions here in uh, Portugal. And I want to share with you um, an original idea that I'm, that's in development, but I'd like to speak about further on Tishabab. And that is, you know, it always bothered me why on Tisha B'Av we don't commemorate the Spanish Inquisition. After all, the, uh, the expulsion was set for Tisha B'Av, August 2nd, 1492. So in the past, we've brought out the idea that the expulsion from Spain in the scheme of Jewish history is not really a tragedy because after all, we're being forced to leave the Gullahs. The Jew never cries when they leave the Gullahs. But there's an, another very important reason why we don't mourn the expulsion in 1492. And that is the expulsion in 1492 was the best of the lot of what could have happened to a Jew in the 15th century. The expulsion was after a hundred years of forced conversion. And once you were forcibly converted and you wanted to practice Judaism secretly, then there was Inquisition, where there were spies everywhere. If you made one wrong turn, you made one wrong move, if you said one wrong word, they would take you, they would take your family, your wife, your children, and they would burn the person alive. That was the, that was the fate of someone who was caught practicing Judaism in secret. The expulsion was a reprieve. Now they had freedom to leave the country. And actually, in the scheme of things, the forcible conversions were much worse than any faith the Jewish people ever suffered. In fact, the Rived writes that while many Jewish tragedies were just a repeat of suffering of the Chormei Samikdash, the forcible conversions were a faith that we never suffered before in our history and have no parallel and have no precedent. And therefore, to commemorate the expulsion of 1492 would be downplaying all the disasters that happened for the hundred years before that made the expulsion pale in comparison. So it would almost be incongruous and distasteful and a lack of respect for what was happening for the previous uh, century to commemorate the expulsion of 1492. So here is, are some uh, introductory remarks, and uh, we're going to hear more from uh, Diogo. Do, as, we get to the place. as we get to the place. 
So this is the oldest shul in the Iberian Peninsula, but it's also dedicated to commemorate one of the most notable personalities of the Iberian Peninsula, Rabbi Avram Zakuto. So that's an important name to remember. He wrote a very important sefer called Sefer Hayuchsen, which traces the generations of world history from Bryas HaOlam until the year 1500. He was born in 1452 till 1515. He invented the Astrolab which is spoken about in Shulchan Aruch. The Astrolab was used by Vasco de Gama and by Christopher Columbus in all of their expeditions. Now, we spoke about uh, many times the tragedy of 1492, so I want to share with you a very important idea. And that idea is, in order to translate a Jewish date into a secular date, what do you do? You add 1240. So the Spanish Inquisition took place in the year Reish Nun Beis. Reish Nun Beis. 452. So you add 1240. Um, what? 252. So you add 1240. 1492. So the, one of the great Achroinim that lived during the time of the Spanish Inquisition, Rabbi Yosef Yaivitz, not to be confused with Rabbi Yaakov Emden. Rabbi Yosef Yaivitz. Yaivitz is an acronym. It stands for Yitain Eitza Be'es Sara. Yaivitz. Rabbi Yosef Yaivitz. By the way, he writes that uh, about various reasons why the Spanish Inquisition happened. By the way, Rabbi Avram Saba says the reason why it happened is because Jews built big homes, luxurious homes, they were attractive to the eye and it caught the attention of the Gentiles and it created jealousy. Not that this has anything to do with American Jewry, but I thought I might point that out. Now, Rabbi Avram Zakuta wrote the Sefer Hayuchsen. I just want to share with you one very moving paragraph and passage in the Sefer Hayuchsen. We spoke about how in Spain in 1391, there were 200,000 forcible conversions. In Portugal, in 1496, Emmanuel gave the Jews 10 months to decide whether they're going to leave or convert. But he did not keep his word. So the first day of Pesach, he forcibly converted Jews. He brought them to center squares. He surrounded them. He said, convert. They didn't want to convert, so he had priests sprinkle them with water. Okay, now they're converted. He also forcibly kidnapped and baptized every last child in Portugal under the age of 14. So if you were a parent and you had a child, you never saw the child again, Rahman al-San. Now, how many exceptions were there? Was this 80%, 90%, 95%? It was 100%. No one was exempt. There were no exemptions from this decree. Says Rabbi Avram Zakuto was one of the few Jews who was able to leave Portugal in 1496. So he writes in the Sefer Hayuchsen, in the year Reish Nun Beis, 252, 1492, in the year Nun Vav Reish, what's Nun Vav Reish? 1496, after the expulsion from Portugal, we didn't know where to go, we couldn't go to France, we couldn't go to Spain. I was an old man. I was with my son Shmuel. Gamani Hashem Baruch Hashem. Zikani Sha'akadesh Shemoyim Shmobani. I was Zoicha Timekadeshim Shamayim. I did not endure forcible 
uh, conversion. Ubanu la Africa. Avram Zuko went to Africa. Which country? He came to Tunis. Vahayinu shvuyim shnei pamim. He was capt- captured two times. Hashem leman chasadov verachamov hagadolim yashlimli ulazari. May the Almighty pay me back. Hashem. That the end of my family, we should be servants of God. Hashem, please place the shear of the destiny of my family with the righteous. So here we are, 500 years later, in the Rabbi Avram Zakuto Museum. He was one of the few people who withstood the temptation of conversion, and he's praying to the Almighty that the destiny of his family should be among the righteous. And he hopes for the three big keys that every Jew should hope for: Gan Eden, Trias Hamesem, Abinyan Beis Hamikdash. Amen. Okay. Good afternoon, everyone. We're headed to the city of Porto. According to the Svarim, the city is called Aparto. And in this context, I want to tell you about the life of one of the greatest Chachamim that lived in Portugal, Rabbi Avraham Saba. Rabbi Avraham Saba was born in Spain in 1440. He passes away in 1508. By the way, 1508 is the year of the passing of the Abarbanel. So immediately you see that he lived through the time of the Spanish expulsion. And in fact, the tragic story of Rabbi Avram Saba is really the illustration of inhumanity that could be perpetrated in the name of religion. Rabbi Avram is born in Castile, was a student of Rabbi Yitzchak de Leon, who instructed him in Kabbalah. By the time of the Inquisition, Rabbi Avram Saba was already 52 years old. Rabbi Avram Saba flees Spain, he comes to Portugal, and he comes to Aparto. The city we're about to go to was the city where Rabbi Avram Saba came. He was looking for a safe haven, but it was not meant to be. Now in his first peaceful years in Portugal, in Aparto, Rabbi Avram completed his momentous commentary on the Chumash. What is it called? Sror Hamar. And his commentary on the Megillahs which is called Eshkol HaKoifer, and also a commentary on uh, Pirkei Avos. As we mentioned, in 1496, the Jews are expelled from Portugal, but King Emmanuel had a terrible surprise in store for the Jews of Portugal. As we mentioned on the first day of Pesach, and according to the account of Rabbi Zechariah Fendel, all Jewish children below the age of 18 were kidnapped and baptized. Rabbi Avram had his two sons taken away from before his eyes, kidnapped, baptized, and he never saw them again. But that was not all. Rabbi Avram had a very extensive library of manuscripts, of handwritten ancient documents and svarim. They were confiscated and burnt publicly in Lisbon, together with thousands of other svarim. So he's bereft of his children, distraught about his life's collection. He flees to Lisbon with a secret treasure. The secret treasure is his personal manuscripts of the Tzror Hamar and the Eshkol HaKoifer. 
One day, Rabbi Abram's family tells him his secret has been revealed. If he will not destroy his manuscripts, he's jeopardizing his life. So with a broken heart, he digs a grave. He buried the Tzrar Hamar and the Eshkel HaKoifer and all of his Chidushim. When we go to Lisbon, we're going to be looking for the Chidushim of Rabbi Avram Saba. He buried it under an olive tree. And Doego is going to be showing us all the olive trees in Lisbon. We're going to be looking for the Chidushim of Rabbi Avram Saba. So you say, did Rabbi Avram Saba ever rewrite his Chidushim? Yes. So what happened was, he buries the Chidushim under an olive tree. He writes in the introduction to the Eshkel HaKoifer on Megillus Esther that he was then subsequently imprisoned with other Tamidich HaChamim. One of the sages he was imprisoned with was forced to convert. The sage would not convert and he died al Kiddush Hashem. And after six terrifying months in prison, Rabbi Avram Saba manages to escape. He escapes from Portugal. And with his last remaining son, Yitzchak, where does he go? To Fez where he rewrote Srar Hamar from memory. However, he says, because of his age and his memory and the Tsaras, he did not restore all of his Chidushim. He rewrote on Chumash, on the Megillah Sester and Megillah Rus. I want to share with you one amazing Chidush of the Tsar Hamar. The Tsar Hamar writes, he says, I'm telling you now something. I'm going to reveal it to you. He writes this in Parshas Va'aschanan. This is something, I never saw, I never heard it. What was revealed to me, meaning he's saying he had divine inspiration. Why is the holiday called Chanukah? Is it because they rested on the 25th day? It should be then, Chanu Bika. What's Chanu Chafei? Says Rabbi Avram Saba, what if a person is very busy, very preoccupied, doesn't have any time to learn? What should a person do if they're so preoccupied they don't have time to learn? Well, what does the Gemara tell us? Even if you just say Shema in the evening and the, and the morning, you're Yaitzay. Because Kriya Shema is basically the cliff note version of Kalatarakula. The words of Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Yachad, they encapsulate the whole Torah. By the way, this is not the time, but there are many proofs that the mitzvah of Kriya Shema is a mitzvah of Talmud Torah. The mitzvah of saying Shema, that's why before we say Shema, we say Abarabu, we make Berchasat Torah. Even, there are many, many uh, proofs to this notion that the mitzvah of Shema is a mitzvah of Talmud Torah. Therefore, says Rabbi Ram Saba, the Chashmonoim, who were running for their life, and they were so tarud, they didn't have time to learn. So how did they serve Hashem? Chanu, they were valiant. Chavhei, with the 25 letters of the Kriya Shema. Shema Yisrael, Hashem Aleikeinu, Hashem Echad. In fact, the Zayar HaKadosh writes, and he doesn't quote this, there are 24 letters in Baruch Shem, Kavayim HaKosayli Elam the Zayar says, when we complete the 24 letters of Baruch Shem and we reach the Madrega of 25, the 25 letters of Shema, we reach the Yom Tif of Hanukkah. At the end of Rabbi Avram Saba's life, he was on a ship and it was uh, headed to Italy. And there was a terrible storm. 
and it threatened to capsize the boat. And the Chidah brings down the story in the Shem Agdalem. Rabbi Avram Saba was asked by the crew on the ship, they saw he was a holy man, please dive in for the welfare of the ship that we should be saved. Rabbi Avram Saba was old, he was weak, and he said, I may not survive back to shore. I will pray for the safe return of the ship if you promise me that you will bring me to Kever Yisrael. They promised him. He prayed. The storm stopped. It's Erev Yom Kippur. Rabbi Avram Saba passed away on Erev Yom Kippur. And Rabbi Avram Saba was brought to Kever Yisrael in Italy, in Valencia. So this is the tragic story of Rabbi Avram Saba and at the same time the inspiring story of how he rewrote all his Kedushim from memory. But I do want to share with you that I believe the story has somewhat of a happy ending. And that is Rabbi Avram Saba had a son Yitzchak. Yitzchak had a daughter. This girl went on to marry Maran Bet Yosef, the Beis Yosef, Rabbi Yosef Karol. So Rabbi Avram Saba became the grandfather-in-law of Rabbi Yosef Karol. So at least through that, he's, he's the foundation of the Shulchan Aruch Shekol Yisrael Nishan Alav. He's Zichroi Baruch. We're going to the city of Aparto, where Rabbi Avram Saba ran away and wrote his Chidushim al So we're here in the streets of Aparto, Portugal. The city where the Tzor Hamar came when he ran away from Spain, where he wrote his commentary, Tzor Hamar and Eshkol HaKoifer. And in this city, we have a plaque that was put up to commemorate the Jews that were given the choice of either death or forcible conversion. But the Pasuk says, That even though these Jews were consumed in fire, their souls were un affected. Their souls went up to Shamayim. As Avram Zukuto writes, many Jews took their own life and committed suicide to avoid the terrible fate of forced conversion. Yehi zichram baruch. Their neshama should be oila tachas kisei hakavayid and be yomel siyasher for klal Yisrael. Okay, good evening everyone. Uh, just want to begin by offering my sincere thanks. Thank you very much, everyone, for your very kind words. It means a lot to me. And we look forward to seeing all of you together, not only on future trips, but Bezos Hashem, Simchas, and Nachas, and all of your families. Amen. I want to begin by saying, you know, you didn't hear from the best speaker in the room. Uh, Avi Moiri, you know... Uh, Many of the personalities that I spoke about over the trip, really my father sparked my interest in. Rabbi Yaakov Sasportas, Rabbi Avram Zakuto, and if my father had the opportunity to share with you from his vast knowledge on these subjects, you would have been uh, treated to a very uh, great delight. But... Be'ezus Hashem, it's a great, great zuchus and honor and privilege to be together with my father and the first time uh, together with my mother on one of these trips. And the zuchus of going to all these tzaddikim should be made for them, for good health, for nachas from 
all of their children and grandchildren at Bias Gael Tzadak. So in 1655, Menashe ben Israel and Rabbi Yaakov they gain audience of Oliver Cromwell. And Menashe ben Israel very passionately pleads with Oliver Cromwell. He says, you know, we Jews, we don't hate Christians. We honor you, we respect you. Please allow us back into England. We've, we were chased out already hundreds of years earlier. And Oliver Cromwell says to Menashe ben Israel, why do you think that, we think that you hate us. We know you don't hate us. We know you respect us. You know, we know you honor us. But I have one question for you, Menashe. And Oliver Cromwell asked Menashe ben Israel a stunning question. He says, what is it with you Jews that you love to go back to countries that they hate you? Why do you want to come back to England? You were banished from England. Why do you want to come back here? It's like well, Jews love to go on vacation. Where are you going on vacation? Well, first I'm going to Auschwitz, and then I'm going to Dachau, and then I'm going to go to Treblinka, you know, just as a grand finale. Jews love go to, places, to go to places where they torture us. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, why did we come here in the first place? Why did we come to Spain? Spain expelled us in 1492. They never rescinded it uh, until the 19th century. So Menashe ben Israel had to think about this question. And Menashe ben Israel, being a big believer in the Zayar HaKadosh, he shared with Oliver Cromwell a Zayar. The Zayar asks, what's the difference between Geulas Mitzrayim and the Guloha Sida? And the Zayar says, Gulas Mitzrayim was only from Mitzrayim, the Guloha Sida will be from the entire world. Oliver Cromwell says, Rabbi, please, uh, please share with me your insight on the Zayar. So Menashe ben Israel said as follows, he said, when Hashem redeemed Klal Yisrael from Mitzrayim, so the Mitzrayim saw it. So they believed in it, but the, but the Gentiles, the nations of the world, all over the world, they didn't necessarily experience it, they didn't necessarily see it, and they didn't necessarily believe in it. So the goal of history is that the Jewish people need to be exiled all over the world. So that when the day will come that Hashem will redeem the Jewish people, the nations of the world will say, Oh, now that Hashem is redeeming you from the far-flung countries of the world, now we believe retroactively in the redemption from Egypt. So it's very important for us to go back to these countries, Menashe ben Israel said. We need to come back to England, so that when Mashiach comes, the English will believe in Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. And Oliver Cromwell was stunned. He said, I thought you Jews were down and out. I thought you Jews have low morale. Now I realize that you have a soaring spirit and you're living with the purpose that you want to bring the belief of your redemption throughout the world. So it's very important for us to come back to these countries. What's left in Spain today? It's a Midbar Shmama. It's nothing. I think we got out every Nitzitz of Kedusha last time around. I, I, there was nothing there. But yet when we got on that plane... And they're gawking at us like we would be aliens from another planet, you know. It's important for us to make ourselves known to them. So that when the great day comes, they know what it's all about. They know who's being redeemed. They know who the Rebun is. This is a very important mission. That we, taking our tefillahs and our Torah and studying our history and traveling these countries so that when that great day comes, 
we're going to connect with it, they're going to understand it. So I want to thank Abi Rokeach for putting his heart and soul for many, many months in organizing. Uh, A tremendous program. And Bezos Hashem, like we said many times, we went to the Rimagash. How long did it take for us to learn a shtickle in the Rimagash? Already Shabbos we're learning the Rimagash. You're going to see all of these Chachamim. This is Rabbi Avram Zakuto, Rabbi Yaakov Sasportas, Menashe Ben Israel. They're going to be coming to you. They're going to be visiting you throughout the year, every week. You're going to say, oh, I can't believe it. I was just there. I just heard about him. I just spoke about him. It's uncanny. So, bizchus, kol hatzadikim, v'hachasidim, v'hachachomim, that we spoke about on this trip, yamoid lanu, ulezareinu, ulezarezareinu, shleitamosh hatoira, mipinu, pizareinu, adoilam. Thank you very much. Good morning, everyone. Shalom Aleichem. We're headed to the city of Lisbon. We were, we were in uh, Aparto. We're headed to Lisbon, but... I would like to uh, revisit a subject uh, that's r- relevant to our visit to Spain and our visit to Portugal as well. And that is, is it permitted for a Jew today to visit Spain and to visit Portugal? Because there seems to be some kind of unspoken practice or acceptance or perhaps even a cherem not to visit Spain and maybe even not to visit Portugal. Now, for many hundreds of years, this was not an issue because we weren't allowed to visit Spain. We weren't allowed to visit Portugal. But in 1968, the Franco government gave permission to repair an ancient synagogue in Madrid. And it brought to the forefront this halachic issue, whether it's permitted to visit Spain today. So, uh, Rev. Bucci asked me to discuss this topic. And uh, here we go. Also... Rabbi Vadi Yosef was invited to inaugurate a yeshiva in, uh, in Spain, in Madrid. And the question is, is this halachically permitted? So in the journal Hadarom, an issue appeared, uh, written by Rabbi Huda Gershuni, as well as by the author of the Hamar. And that is, the author suggests that there was a cherem, that it was an unspoken acceptance of the Jewish people, that for 400 years we were bound by a cherem, that we're not allowed to uh, visit the country of Spain. And after the 400 year lapse in 1892, the Jewish people willingly accepted upon themselves never again to return to these cursed countries. And the question is, is there any halachic basis for this? Was there in fact such a cherem? Did the Jewish people accept not to return to these countries? So it was a bit of a mystery. And Rabbi Huda Gershuni quotes Rabbi Avram Yitzchak HaKoyen Kuk, where Rabbi Kuk writes in his letters, there is no halachic source that there was ever a cherem, that there, ever, there was ever a ban not to return to Spain. Likewise, Rabbi Yitzchak Isaac Halevi Herzog, the first chief rabbi of Israel, also writes, there is no halachic basis not to be able to return to these countries. He says, even if there was a cherem, 
it would be permitted for later rabbis to revoke that cherem. However, Rabbi Yehuda Gershuni, after studying the subject and in fact acknowledging that there is no authentic basis for such a cherem, he says that is only enough to downgrade the status of such a prohibition to a suffix. Now what would the halacha be by suffix cherem? Suffix means a doubt. We know suffix da'iraisa l'chumra. When you're in doubt as regarding biblical law, one has to be strict. What about cherem? Well, the Rajba writes in a tshuva, the Rajba, Rabbi Shlomo ben Aderes of Barcelona, the Rajba writes in a tshuva, suffix cherem l'chumra. So in that case, Rabbi Huda Gershuni concludes, it would be prohibited for a Jew to return at least to Spain today. Uh, my personal opinion is that one should avoid going to Spain because it's too hot. But that's, that's my own personal opinion. Now, there were um, the Tzitzeliezer, Rev. Waldenberg, after discussing the issue and concluding that we have no source in the halachic responsa that there was a cherem not to return to Spain, he applies the following rule. Yisrael, in Einam Neviim, B'nei Neviim Heim. The Jewish people, if we are not prophets, we are the descendants of prophets. And somehow, if it's in our national conscience not to return to Spain, it must be rooted in authentic Torah perspective. And therefore, the Tzitz also uh, suggests that perhaps it's better not to visit Spain in light of this uh, Jewish practice. There were a number of uh, halachic authorities, however, who did permit return to Spain. The Munkacher, Reb Chaim Elazar Shapiro, in a responsa in Tel Talpiois, he says, it is permitted for a Jew to reside in Spain, provided that the Jewish nationals of the country are given religious freedom. Um, now, Rabbi Warman, Rabbi Shlomo Warman, quotes a very interesting source, uh, he quotes the Sefer Teruas Melech of Rabbi Yosef Susmanowitz, the son-in-law of Rabbi Moshe Mordechai Epstein, who says that this prohibition, in fact, while there is some basis, we mentioned, you know, the name Toledano, the etymology is Toledo no, they took a vow, they would never return to Toledo. But nevertheless, he says that the ban never extended to all of Israel, only to those families who were expelled, and in that case, it never attains the halachic status of something which is binding upon all of the Jewish people. And therefore, he rules it is permitted for a Jew to return to Spain today. Likewise, the Munkacher allowed return to Spain. However, I want to share with you that it is clear that throughout Jewish history, residence in Spain was discountenanced. Rabbi Tovia Prashel wrote an article in the Israeli newspaper in the Hamodia in 5714 and later he, it appeared in Hadoar that in the archives of Hamburg it contains a document indicating that in 1658 the community adopted a regulation that provided whoever visits Spain or Portugal may not be called up to the Torah or honored with any other mitzvah for two years so, Marv Rabbi when you return now from your trip, 
if you're all insulted, you know, how come I don't get an aliyah in my shul? Why doesn't anybody value me? No, 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 you're done. You can't get an aliyah for two years. Not only for visiting Spain, visiting Portugal also. There was, whether it was not a halachic ruling, there was a, in the national cons- uh, conscience of the Jewish people, it was discountenanced. Sisoros. In Jewish life, 5717, Rabbi Bleich cites that there were religious sanctions imposed upon any visitor to Spain and Portugal. What did that include? That in the society for dowering the brides, if you wanted to give money to a chassan, no, 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 no. You can't go to Spain or Portugal. And furthermore, in, 16, um, in 1785, in the Haskamois in London, that there were sanctions placed against anyone who visited Spain. Here is probably the most uh, realistic perspective on the issue. A professor, Avraham Shalom Yehuda, published a tshuva in Talpiois, who gave the following approach. He said the law of the land of Spain, as long as the Inquisition was in, was in effect, is that no Jew could return to Spain and practice Judaism openly. Any Jew who returns to Spain after the date of the expulsion would be obligated to convert to Christianity or suffer death. That is what was stated by the Inquisitions in, in the Inquisition well into the 19th century. In that case, if a Jew wanted to return to Spain, his only option was to cloak himself, to dress up, to pretend to be a Christian. Now, is it permitted for a Jew, for financial reason, or to save their life, to pretend to be a Christian? No, it's prohibited. One has to give up their life not to pretend to be a Christian. Therefore, says Rabbi Yehuda Gershuni, says, excuse me, Rabbi Shalom Yehuda, there was never a cherem not to return to Spain. The Inquisition halachically forbid a Jew from returning to Spain. Because in order to return to Spain, you had a disguise as a Christian. And that is halachically prohibited. So not that there was actually a halacha not to return to Spain, but rather inherent in the Inquisition was it was forbidden for a Jew to return to Spain. I would like to conclude with the halachic conclusion of Maran Ravavadi Yosef in the Yabi Omer Chilak Zayin Yeradeya Simen Yodalev. Rabbi was invited to inaugurate a yeshiva in Madrid. Rabbi Paskind, not necessarily that it's permitted to live in Spain, but it's permitted to visit Spain. Why? First of all, it's not always hot. No, I'm just joking. That's not the reason. Number one, because it is not clear that there was ever a cherem not to return to Spain. Number two, it's therefore a suffix. And even if there was a cherem, maybe they only decreed it upon themselves and not on, not on their descendants. And even if there was a decree on their descendants, maybe they only decree that one is not allowed to live there, but visiting is permitted. Therefore, says Rabbi Avadia, Hilkach, Asisi Masa, Uvikarti Bimedrid Biras Farad. I visited the capital. I inaugurated the yeshiva and I was invited by King Juan Carlos of Spain to his palace and Rabbi Vadya writes 
he very much respected Juan Carlos as a very wise and sagacious ruler and he made two blessings on Juan Carlos he made the blessing that God gives power to flesh and blood and he made the blessing that God gives wisdom to flesh and blood and King Juan Carlos gave Rabavadia a Bible that was published in Amsterdam as well as another gift and therefore Rabavadia Paskins Halacha one is allowed to visit Spain and Portugal and we could add that's what we did in Tafshin Pegimo and uh, we should see the continued rebuilding of the Jewish communities here on the Iberian Peninsula until the great day of our return to Tsiayim Okay, uh, we're here in downtown Lisbon. We're opposite a church where one of the greatest pogroms that ever happened in Lisbon occurred right here on a particular instance where during Mass there was a claim, like Diogo said, that the image of Yeshu was glowing. It was just the sun's reflection. But for a converso to say that, he was sort of giving up his identity and he was uh, mutilated over here opposite the court tribunal of the Inquisition here in Lisbon and Portugal. There was a terrible pogrom over here. It began, the first pogroms were in 1504, but the worst pogrom of all was in 1506 at this location. Our very um, eminent guide, Diogo, is going to translate for us. The first thing you notice is there's a pasuk in Eoiv. Eretz al techasi dami, which means earth, don't cover up our blood, which the ground is soaked with. This is a place of our outcry. So the memorial of 1506, Diogo is going to translate. 1506-2006, in memory of the thousands of Jews, victims of intolerance and religious fanatism, assassinated in the massacre initiated on the 19th of April of 1506 in this square. You know, and sometimes you think, is there ever a divine retribution for what happened? So we have to mention that on November 1st, 1755, there was an earthquake here in Lisbon, which is said to be 9.2 on the Richter scale, one of the worst, if not the very worst, earthquake in the history of Europe. It leveled 85% of the entire city. At the time, when did it happen? November 1st, All Saints Day, which is the primary Christian holiday. What time did it happen? 9.30 a.m. When 200,000 Christians were in mass. And at the time, hundreds of thousands were killed. Here in Lisbon and throughout the country. Now, like Diogo mentioned, at the time, because of the earthquake, the Christians were lighting candles as part of their service. Wildfires spread. They ran down, they ran down to the riverbank. First of all, they saw it became revealed treasures from ships that had sunk. They went to take the shalal, and then all of a sudden, first a wave came nine meters high, washed them away, followed by two tsunamis. So tens of thousands of additional Christians died in the tsunamis and in the fire after the earthquake. What was destroyed? Most of the churches of the city were destroyed. Some of them have never been rebuilt. The library was destroyed. The court tribunal of the Inquisition was destroyed. Now, did they recognize that it was divine retribution? The reaction of some of the priests was that this was happening. I mean, you could see 
the open hand of God and everyone interprets it how they want to interpret it. It was interpreted, it's because they did not eradicate enough conversos. So they found one more converso and they burnt him. But you, you should know that the divine retribution was very clear because through the wildfires people were literally burnt alive in the same places where there was autodafe. So draw your own conclusions. Who are we to investigate the ways of God? Draw your own conclusions. So always wonder, why only in Portugal do we see divine retribution? Why not in Spain? Well some say there were many more forced conversions in Portugal than there were in Spain. But perhaps Spain has its own retribution. And that is the greatest retribution. Ferdinand and Isabella, their plot was to eradicate any Jewish influence in the world. But they were the ones who paid for Christopher Columbus's expedition. And he discovered America, which was the greatest haven of the Jewish people in the history of the world. So in a certain sense, that's also retribution. They were trying to eradicate Jewish influence. Little did they know they would build up the greatest haven for the Jewish people in the history of the world. So sometimes we have to keep our eyes open and we see how Hashem keeps the score and the, uh, those who act wickedly, But those Gentiles who are righteous Gentiles, Hashem rewards them as well. As we know, King Charles, the King of Spain, or the King of England, he comes from a dynasty of uh, a queen who saved Jews during the Holocaust. And in that merit, she had many generations of rulers. So all of our actions in this world are, were accountable for. All of our thoughts were accountable for. All of our deeds were accountable for. And whether in our lifetime or in our future, God keeps the score. There's an eye in Raya. There's an eye that sees everything is videoed. Not everything goes on Torah anytime. But everything is videoed. And everything is remembered. And everything is accounted for. So this is something we see here in the streets of Lisbon. Hey, good afternoon everyone. Of all the presentations that we've learned so far, this is going to be by far the most colorful. And I was saving this for Portugal. This is one of the most unusual, exciting, um, colorful situations that ever unfolded in Jewish history. Let's just paint the background. So here it is, Portugal, 1496, expulsion from Portugal. In 1504, pogroms erupted. 1506 is a year of dreadful plague in Portugal. Thousands of conversos were slain in a continuing series of pogroms the worst occurring here in Lisbon. It became so bad that Emmanuel actually, because there was so much uh, instability, he allowed conversos to leave the country. That changed later on, but I'm just telling you what the backdrop of the story is. So onto the scene of this woeful, unstable situation steps one of the most mysterious characters in Jewish history. Charlatan. Madman, genius, scholar, believer, defender, opportunist, hero, villain, among other wonderful qualities. He's all one and the same. And his effect on Sephardic Jewry and the world was apocalyptic. Thank you. So he's a, 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 a swarthy Jew. 
He's dressed like an Arab. He appears in 1523 in Egypt. He identifies himself as a member of the tribe of Reuven, exiled by King Sancherev. He comes from the other side of the Sambatyon River. He claims to have letters and credentials to be from the Jewish king of the Asaras Hashvatim. And he has come to meet with the Pope for a secret venture. What's the secret venture? He's going to join forces as the king of the Asaras Hashvatim. He's going to join forces with the Pope to free the land of Israel, where the land of Israel would become a Jewish state. So the Pope, what's in it for the Pope? What's in it for the Pope was the Pope would get control of all Christian holy places and the trade routes. And in exchange for that, Israel would become a Jewish state so that the conversos have a safe haven. He did not make any messianic claims, but to claim that you're the king of the Asas Hashvatim and you're going to free the Holy Land, it cannot be separated from a messianic claim. So in 1524, he comes to Jerusalem. He claims to have performed great miracles on the Temple Mount, that he extracted a rock from under the Kodesh HaKadoshim. He then comes to Venice and he asks audience to meet with the Pope. He arrives there dressed as an Arabian sheik. He's riding a white horse, carrying a banner that he's the king of the Aser Sashvatim. And we've had some interesting meetings so far. You know, Rabbi Vadya Yosef meets King Juan Carlos. Menashe ben Israel meets Oliver Cromwell. But this is by far the most unlikely audience in history. Pope Clement VII meets David Haruveni and he approves of the plan to free Jerusalem and Israel from the Muslim infidels. But on one condition, he said this is only going to work. The only way we can access the Christian army is we have to settle the long-standing feud between the German army, excuse me, between the German emperor and the French king. And the only one who could broker that deal is the king of Portugal. So in 1525, David Ruveni, with a letter from the Pope, gains audience with the king of Portugal who agrees to broker a deal between the emperor of Germany and the French king. Now David Haruveni is officially the ambassador of the king of Portugal. So now David Haruveni, as the ambassador of the king of Portugal, he's very confident in his position, so he feels he can openly flaunt his Jewishness. He starts teaching Torah to the conversos who come out of the woodwork. He takes a Muslim maidservant. He publicly converts her to Judaism. And now he makes it known to the Abarbanel's family who's hiding in Lisbon as conversos to come out and to proclaim their allegiance to Torah Judaism. The drama reaches its climax when another mysterious person enters the picture. His name is Dr. Diego Perez. He's a, a descendant of a converso family, child prodigy, and he's 20 years. He's a poet, a writer, orator, linguist, scholar, very spiritual, and he doesn't find any solace in his soul with Christianity. So he starts to search for his Jewish roots. He learned Hebrew. He taught himself Talmud and Kabbalah. He comes to David Huruveni and he tells him about his visions and his dreams. David cautions him about any rash acts Diego publicly circumcises himself 
literally with his own hand, he changed his name. His name is now Shlomo Malcho, and he begins to teach Torah. The Inquisition comes to the king. He's a king. There's you can't. What? Well, 1536. The Inquisition demanded the king take action against Shlomo and David, and the king ordered David to either convert or leave. David Haruveni leaves to Italy. Shlomo follows him there. Now Shlomo's having all kinds of visions of the imminent, uh, the imminent messianic deliverance. Now in some of um, Shlomo's dreams, Shlomo was the Messiah. In some of his dreams, David was the Messiah. In other dreams, they were both the Messiah. All of a sudden, there are floods, wars, earthquakes, racking Europe in 1532. Europe is shaken, is stirred by the Messianic fervor. David and Shlomo now traveled to Germany to enlist the Emperor of Germany's aid to support the war against the Muslims in, in Israel. The emperor is not impressed. He took, takes David. David is arrested. And he burns Shlomo Molchai at the stake. Shlomo Molchai is now held up as the paragon of someone who dies Al-Kiddush Hashem. In fact, if you look in the Magad Mesharem, the angel that came to learn with the Beis Yosef promised him because the Beis Yosef wanted to die Al-Kiddush Hashem like Shlomo Malchai. And the angel promised the Beis Yosef that indeed he would also die Al-Kiddush Hashem like Shlomo Malchai. One of the biggest questions on the Magid Meisharem is that the Beis Yosef never died Al-Kiddush Hashem like the angel promised him. Basically, Shlomo Malchai's life was very much uh, romanticized but later on in history, he was more considered a false messiah. David Haruveni disappears. Nobody knows what happened to him. Some say he died in jail in 1535. But the death of Shlomo Mocha and the disappearance of David Haruveni was sort of the beginning of the end of any type of converso community here in Portugal. So... Until then, there were communities of conversos. There were no longer any uh, communities of conversos. You had some individuals who continued to hold on to Jewish practice, but the converso communities as entities disappear in the 16th century. That was the end of then. The, The end of this messianic fervor really put an end to any type of uh, converso community here on the Iberian Peninsula. But you see why at the time the atmosphere was fertile where the Jews were looking for some type of salvation, some type of deliverance. And uh, unfortunately, this put an end to any kind of uh, community entity of observance here on the Iberian Peninsula. So this is the Amazing story of David Haruveni and Shlomo Mocha. The worst pogroms in uh, the history of Portugal in 1506. Okay, some final thoughts, everybody. Firstly, we want to thank our expert guide, Diogo. Uh, we want to thank him for his expertise. He has a pleasure to listen to. And he was respectful and courteous. So go to Trip Advisory. And give him a five-star rating. Thank you. What?
Portugal magic. I think uh, over the last two days, we over the last two days, we realized uh, there's a very big difference between Portugal and Spain, uh, not just on a spiritual level, but even on a physical level. Most most of us found that Portugal is quite a beautiful country. And is there any way to explain and account for this difference between Portugal and Spain? We also spoke about the Cheyrem, not to return to Spain, whether there's basis for this or not. Regarding uh, returning to Spain, there's a very interesting argument of Rav Herzog. Rav Herzog says it can't be worse than Mitzrayim, than Egypt, where the Torah says you're not allowed to return to Egypt, and the Rambam went to Egypt. So if Egypt, where there's an Isser in the Torah, and yet the Rambam went back, it can't be that Spain, which at most is a Cheyrem, then there must be some reason why it's permitted to go back. And in fact, the Chidot says as follows. The Chidah explains that uh, he heard in the name of the Arizal himself that at first, of course, it was forbidden to go to Egypt. And the reason for that is Moshe Rabbeinu was told by Paroi, Loi soisifu oid roiz panai. I don't, you're not going to see my face again. And Moshe said, that's right, I'm not going to see your face. And the Mekubalim explained that there's a reason for the phenomenon that when the Jewish people are in a gullus, in, a, in an exile, when it ends, it ends overnight. They don't give us much warning. We don't have that much time to leave. And the reason is, our mission in the exile is to gather all the sparks of Kedush, all the sparks of holiness that were scattered here from the time of Adam Arisha and from the time of Chorben. But once we're finished doing with our job, we have no further business in the country, like uh, Reb Neil said over on Shabbos. And we're out and on to the next. However, says the Chidah, when we left Mitzrayim, we We took out every last spark of Kedusha. Therefore, we have no more business in Mitzrayim. We can't go there. What's the purpose of going there? But says the Chidah, he heard from the Ari, that once Yirmiyahu was exiled to Mitzrayim, so he, had a, he put some more sparks of Kedusha there. Once he put sparks of Kedusha there, so now the Rambam was allowed to go back there, and now we're allowed to go back there, and uh, the rest is history. I would venture to say, humbly, it's the same thing with Spain. When we left in 1492, we took everything with us. We took every last ounce of Kedusha. When the Jewish put 200,000 Jews, our Barbanel writes, 300,000 Jews were expelled in 1492. There's nothing left in the country. There's no Kedusha in the country. There's no Ruchnius in the country. There's no Gashmius in the country. Maybe when they made a Beis HaKnesses there, they inaugurated a yeshiva there. Maybe when Rabbi Vadya Yosef went there, he sprinkled in some Kedusha. So we had... We had a few days of uh, gathering in whatever was left. It seems that Portugal still has uh, a couple more neat sites, so therefore it's still a beautiful country, and it has good weather and good sunlight. In Spain, when the sun shines, it's not comfortable. In Portugal, when the sun shines, it's a pleasure. It warms the heart. It warms the heart. So The Kedusha in us. That's right. <laughs> um... So it's uh, the Chidah then writes that in everybody's personal mission and travels in life, where they go, some people stopped off in the coffee shop, some people went to the souvenir shop. Everyone has sparks of kedusha that they personally need to gather in. So no, we don't know why 
We had a, there was an accident here. We didn't go to the lookout. We had to go to see Manuel's palace. We had to go to see the limestone. There's a reason for that. We had to gather in some extra sparks and a different route. So wherever you go in life, whatever travels you make, wherever Hashem leads you, there's a reason for it, there's a purpose for it, and we try to elevate every footstep we take. It's been a pleasure being together with you. I thank everyone for your friendship. Until the next time, Bracha v'hatzlacha, L'shana haba b'Yerushalayim. Thank you very much. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.